Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Satoko Naito from the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm joined today by Dr. Yoko Demilius, Senior Researcher at the Center for East Asian Studies, and Dr. Sarah Park, Lecturer at the Department of Cultures in the Faculty of Arts at the University of Helsinki. They are here today to discuss immigration in Japan, its historical background, and the current state. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's recently been and continues to be a nearly unprecedented number of global migrants and refugees due, of course, to major military conflicts, widespread poverty and crime, as well as natural disasters. Japan, too, has taken in migrants over the years, though our guests will explain exactly what this means. The treatment of immigrants and non-ethnic Japanese residents has historically been a major issue. It's been long criticized by activists and scholars in Japan, as well as the international community. In recent years, there's been even wider international condemnation towards noteworthy incidents, like multiple horrific deaths of asylum seekers held at immigration detention centers, as well as hate rallies held in major Japanese cities targeting ethnic Korean residents. This really has only cemented the image of Japan as having essentially closed borders and as a state that resists diversity, uh, ethnic, racial, and otherwise. So if you can first explain whether there is truth to that image of a closed Japan, Sarah, if we can start with you, can you tell us the number of immigrants? Is that still very small? And who are these individuals, these immigrants? Okay, thank you, uh, Sadoko-san. So according to the immigration services agencies, 2.96 million registered foreigners now living in Japan as of June 2022. So this number, however, does not include people who stay in Japan for less than three months or U.S. military personnel or mixed-use children. The biggest group in this population is Chinese, followed by Vietnamese, Koreans, Filipinos, and Brazilians. By the status of residents, the biggest group has permanent residency, 29%, then technical intern traineeship, uh, 11%, followed by special permanent residency and technology or humanities international affairs residencies, both have around 10%, and 19% of them live in Tokyo, and 9% of them live in Aichi and Osaka prefecture, 8% in Kanagawa, and 7% in Saitama prefectures. So about one-third of the registered foreigners in Japan live in metropolitan areas. And uh, those data tell you three interesting things. First, the population of the registered foreigners represents less than 3% of the total Japanese population, so uh, it's a quite small ratio in Japan. However, combined with Japan's declining population, the foreign population has increased its share. And second, uh, this term and notion of registered foreigners covers quite a wide range of the people. So I mentioned the term uh, special permanent residency status, which means that the holders are the people and the descendants who are from Korea and Taiwan. So uh, namely former colonies of the Japanese empire about 70 years ago, and later lost their Japanese nationality after Japan formally lost its colonies. 
And on the other hand, I also mentioned the technical entrepreneurship. They are the people who work and are trained in Japan in order to obtain knowledge and skills in Japan and then eventually bring them back to the developing countries. And these、uh, technical entrepreneurs cannot accompany their families, and、uh, the five years of stay is maximum. So, such different groups of people are the same foreigners under the Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act of Japan. And the third, but not least interesting point is that only 10% of these registered foreigners hold resident status for the purpose of work. So,、uh, the majority of foreign laborers in Japan do e s not actually hold working visas, but only other residency status, such as permanent residency or traineeship or study. In other words, the immigration control policy of Japan restricts labor migration, which enables the Japanese government to claim that Japan does not accept migrants. That sounds like a really shocking claim. So, because of the restriction of labor migration, if I'm understanding you correctly, Japan makes this claim that it officially does not accept immigrants. Yes, indeed. Right. Okay. Yoko, if you can further explain what this means in reality. Yes, thank you. The use of the term immigrants in this sense assumes foreign nationals who arrive would permanently stay in the country. So, Japan officially does not welcome any foreign nationals to immigrate to the country. The discrepancies between real situations and Japan's official stance created opportunities for exploiting those who didn't have legal status to remain in the country. During the phase of Japan's economic expansion in the 1980s, the notion of newcomers started to appear in the public debate. The initial influx of laborers in Japan in the 1980s didn't result from a state policy. Rather, it emerged from a market driven demand and supply between employers and workers. But then, there was a growing need for low wage foreign workers in Japan. At the same time, there were specific conditions in which the neighboring East Asian and Southeast Asian countries or Middle Eastern countries pushed their populations to seek a new place to work. Japan became one of the attractive destinations for migrant workers. Japan was not officially accepting immigrants, so illegal labor brokers arranged potential workplaces and transportation. This is the so called backdoor entry of immigrants to the country. Many unskilled migrant workers in the 1980s arrived in Japan with a tourist visa and continued staying there due to the absence of an entry category for unskilled laborers. This stance continued until recently. In the 1990s, a few amendments were made to the existing immigration law. South Americans with Japanese ancestry, such as Japanese Brazilians and Japanese Peruvians, up to the third generation, received preferential treatment and were allowed to work freely as unskilled laborers. In 1993, as the side door policy, the highly controversial technical intern training program was introduced, and these amendments gradually shaped the country's immigration law by drawing the line between the legal and illegal categories. The technical intern training program was criticized for Japan's use of the program to access cheap laborers by keeping the official stance of not accepting unskilled laborers. 
This program was heavily supported by the divisions within the Liberal Democratic Party responsible for construction and agricultural production. At the same time, this visa status didn't provide any prospect for workers to obtain legal permanent status for residency. The visa duration under the program was first two years, then extended to three years, and finally to five years in 2015. The short visa duration is designed to satisfy conservative voters who want to maintain Japan's image as a homogeneous society. The implementation of visa duration implies the country's conservative stance on immigrants, and their prospects for a long-term stay are dim. Japan prefers highly skilled professionals who are allowed to apply for permanent residency status after three years and otherwise after 10 years of stay in the country. And the requirement includes an unclear category such as good behavior and conduct. Are there any exceptions made for asylum seekers and refugees? Or in other words, does Japan accept refugees? Uh, the answer is yes and no. So in the late 1970s, Japan accepted so-called boat people from the Indochina area uh, and then later ratified the UN Convention for the Status of Refugees in 1981. Uh, however, last year, Japan recognized only 202 people as refugees out of 3,772 people who claimed asylum. So precisely 2% of the asylum applicants were recognized as refugees in Japan. And according to the Japan Association for the Refugees, the highest number of the refugees recognized in 2022 was 46,000 in Germany, and the highest recognition rate was 59% in Canada. So you can say that uh, it is extremely difficult to be recognized as a refugee in Japan in comparison with other OECD or so-called developed countries. The main reason lies in the fact that the Japanese government has particularly or peculiarly narrow category for their interpretation of the UN Refugee Convention. First, the Japanese government does not recognize someone as a refugee unless that person is individually targeted by the government in your country. So simply because you have been forced to leave your country due to war or because your life is in danger if you return to your home country are not enough to be recognized as a refugee in Japan. In addition, forced labor and physical restraints are also not recognized as persecution in some cases. And persecution is not recognized unless the life of the person is in danger. Besides, unless the asylum seeker can prove by objective evidence the basis of such persecution, they will not be recognized as persecuted. So all of these are likely violations of the refugee status guidelines issued by the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees. Uh, Japan Association for Refugees points out that such peculiar criteria are the product of the lack of uh, political decision for accepting refugees into Japan. If we look at the historical perspective, Japan accepted Indochina refugees not because it was trying to help them from a humanitarian standpoint, but because it was a part of its anti-communist foreign policy to accept people escaping from countries such as Vietnam that were ruled by the communist regimes. However, after the end of the Cold War, many countries accepted refugees uh, or at least changed their uh, criteria of recognition for the refugees, except for Japan. 
I see, except for Japan. It sounds like the asylum seekers are expected to have documentation of individual persecution. That would be rather impossible, I would imagine. And you've also explained, Yoko, that legal pathways for non-asylum seeking immigrants are nearly as limited. So naturally, it would make sense that with such legal obstacles, there must be undocumented residents in the country. Is that right? And, and how are they treated? The treatment of undocumented people in Japan is highly criticized. Japan's accession to the Refugee Convention and Refugee Protocol prompted Japan's immigration law to the present form and title, the Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act in 1982. Migrants who violate the law are placed in one of the nine detention centers operated by the Immigration Services Agency. One of the critical problems at the detention centers is their instances of suspected human rights violations. Between 2012 and 2018, 50% of detainees' detention period was over six months. Japan's stance is to keep detainees, including those who wait for refugee status, locked up until detainees themselves decide to leave the country. But those with family members in Japan or those whose lives are at risk of persecution in their home countries would choose not to be sent home and therefore detained under the current practice. Detainees tend to stay locked up for a long time, especially those under consideration for refugee status. Insufficient medical care is provided to detainees. This led to multiple cases of death, including suicides and starvation. There is a lack of transparency in the everyday operation at the centers. Regarding detainees' rights to legal assistance, there are many cases of suspected human rights violations at the centers. In the early 1990s, the government didn't treat visa overstayers as law-breaking criminals, mainly due to the country's desperate need for cheap laborers. But a visa overseer's status has gradually shifted due to the domestic and global political circumstances. Undocumented people have become criminalized in the last two decades. NGOs and civic organizations have been advocating for visa overseers' rights to access essential public services such as public education for their children and emergency medical services for birth and work-related injuries. Japanese law stipulates that residents of municipalities are entitled to essential services provided by local municipalities. This is precisely specified under the International Covenants on Human Rights. In fact, when overstayers weren't clearly criminalized as today, many visa overstayers used to get some services not because there was clear guidance, but because they didn't have clear direction. In fact, the increased costs for overstayers in municipalities prompted municipal governments' demand to seek proper direction from the national government. In the 2000s, a more apparent distinction between legal and illegal statuses produced the idea of controlling illicit residents. Since 2007, those without a special permanent resident visa should register their photos and fingerprints at the immigration inspection at entry points. 
In 2009, a new immigration law was implemented to tighten the control over foreign nationals, and those without authorized permits, such as visa overstayers, lost access to essential public services. Until 2009, foreign residents' registries were overseen by municipal governments. This new law obligated the issuance of identification cards, and monitoring of foreign residents' statuses became nationalized. Terrorist attacks in the West and the society's increasing demand for public security in the same period heightened the skepticism toward foreign residents. Visa overstayers are exploited by their employers and associates due to their vulnerable situations. In 2010, a new amendments were made, and the Immigration Bureau was given the power to reject entries and remove foreign residents without legal papers. They become an object of control by the state, criminalizing visa overstayers who enter the country with a technical intern trainee status or student visa. The Immigration Services Agency, with more discretionary power to control foreign residents and visa issuance, replaced the Immigration Bureau in 2019. I see. This Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act of 1982 that you mentioned, this I understand has been reformed rather recently in both 2019 and then in 2023. There's been some divided reporting about these reforms. Can you explain what these series of revisions were? Yes. So the 2019 revision of the Immigration Control Act established specified skilled workers number one and number two. And so the specified skilled workers number one、uh, allows five years of stay, and while number two has an unlimited period of stay, and both allow applicants to bring their family with them. Some researchers argue that this is the first time that Japan has opened its door to foreign workers in the form of the specified skilled workers visas. However, other researchers believe that no substantive changes will take place as the technical intern trainees are much more common already than specified skilled workers. So, the specified skilled workers number one is substantially the same as the technical intern traineeship, except that the specified skilled workers number one can bring their families to Japan. On the other hand, the number of the specified skilled workers number two has not increased so far. So, it means that the workers who can stay in Japan with their family permanently has not increased so far after three years. So, you can say that the 2019 reform will not bring about significant changes so far. On the other hand, this year, so 2023, Japan also revised its Immigration Control and Refugee Recognition Act. And this time, it allows for even more inhumane treatment for asylum seekers, including a maximum limit of three asylum applications per person and the possibility of forcible deportation even for the people who are in the process of asylum application in Japan. If I mention a better now and once discussed issue, Ukrainian refugees have not brought any substantial changes in Japan's refugee recognition because they are currently referred to as SKPs, not refugees, because the Japanese government does not change its criteria for recognizing refugees. So, as I mentioned, in their particular or peculiar criteria, where refugees are not refugees, that the Japanese government should recognize and ask. 
So in the light of these facts, it is feared that the Japan's immigration system requires either that the foreign nationals be worthy or warm-hearted plans to stay in Japan, or that they are workers who have passed through a very strict screening process. And it is difficult to believe the country that has not recognized the rights of foreigners unless they are exceptional human beings, guarantees universal, equal, and unconditional human rights to its own nationals either. Just to reiterate, Ukrainian immigrants that have recently moved to Japan have been designated as escapees rather than refugees in order that they can be processed by completely different means from other asylum seekers. And if I may add one point, Japan's shrinking working population requires reconsideration of immigration policy. However, the recent reforms still indicate that foreign residents are treated merely as the source of a labor force instead of part of Japan's population. By upgrading the position of the new Immigration Services Agency, it has more authority to decide the statuses of both asylum seekers who need protection and so-called criminalized visa overstayers who are the object of control. The lack of transparency and a clear process to contest the agency's decisions is highly problematic. Yes, it's for sure very problematic, as you say, and it's very disheartening that neither the 2019 nor the 2023 revisions to the so-called Refugee Recognition Act actually recognizes refugees, as you've said, as more than a source of labor, particularly for a shrinking population. And also that the most recent revisions, if I'm understanding it correctly, has actually aggravated human rights violations of asylum seekers and other immigrants. I mentioned the global coverage of explicit hate rallies in several major Japanese cities, Osaka, Kawasaki, and it was reported then that at least at the time, so the mid-2010s, there was no official national law against hate speech in Japan. Has this changed? Yes, the current Hate Speech Act implemented in 2016 is a conceptual law that expresses principles but does not criminalize hate speech to penalize the act of hate. The purpose of the law is not to impose sanctions on specific individuals or organizations. Under this law, it's acknowledged that there shouldn't be any hateful speech or acts to promote discrimination against people based on their nationality, race, and ethnicity. Municipalities are encouraged to communicate this principle to their residents. The national government used to hold the stance that Japan's racial discrimination wasn't severe enough and required legal action. In addition, Japan doesn't have a piece of legislation to prohibit discrimination of any kind. In 1995, Japan joined the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination. However, it hasn't committed to penalizing discrimination under the principle of guaranteeing freedom of expression under the Constitution of Japan. Since Japan doesn't have the concept of universal human rights, and the Japanese version of human rights only applies to Japanese nationals, the effect of the Hate Speech Act is minimal. 
Kawasaki City, which suffered from hate speech and rallies against old Kama Korean residents or Zainichi Koreans since the 2000s, issued an ordinance against hate speech with penal regulations in 2019. The ordinance applies to hate acts in public spaces in Kawasaki City, and those found guilty must pay a fine of up to 500,000 yen. Since the establishment of the ordinance, hate rallies in public space has decreased, but online hate speech has continued. In 2016, a Kawasaki City resident who suffered from online hate speech targeted against her prosecuted a man who posted over 300 hate speech posts. He was finally indicted on charges of hate speech in Yokohama District Court just this month and ordered to pay 1,940,000 yen in compensation. In this context, the cases of Kawasaki City's examples were the first in its history and quite significant to the minority community. That is indeed quite significant, and I hope this can lead to more universal changes nationally. I just wanted to mention because you use the term old comer and Zainichi Korean residents, and old comer as opposed to the term you used earlier, newcomer denoting the foreign born laborers who came in during the 1980s economically expanding Japan. Just wanted to mention that for our listeners. There are major humanitarian problems, as you both make very clear. You've introduced me to a film titled Translated We Are Humans. It's currently being screened in select theaters in Japan and elsewhere. It movingly highlights clear human rights violations of both newcomer and oldcomer residents, so asylum seekers, as well as longtime residents, including children born in Japan to non ethnic Japanese parents. Would you like to say a few words about this film? Sure, yes. So, this is a documentary film directed by Ko Chanyu, a Zainichi Korean journalist, and it covers all the topics we have discussed so far today. So, from the historical origins of the Japan's immigration control policy, so the old comers, Koreans and Taiwanese, special permanent residency holders, to the infamous inhumane treatment of asylum seekers in the deportation detention center, as well as the technical interchangeship. Actually, I suppose one of the things that is lacking in migration studies conducted in and focused on Japan is a comprehensive perspective that tries to grasp the continuity of the immigration control regime without ignoring the detailed differences of each of the Japanese government's policies. And I believe that this film is exceptionally fills the gap of the past and presents serious problems in Japan's immigration control policy and the realities that brings about. The film's production is extensively supported by civic organizations and a group of lawyers who fight against Japan's suspected immigration related human rights violations. Residents of Japan, including minority populations, historically lobbied for improving minorities' rights, and some positive changes have been made in the past. This film plays a vital role in drawing international attention to urgent humanitarian issues related to immigration in Japan. It's an important and educational film, certainly, that gives us even more to think about regarding these complex issues. I want to thank you both so much for taking your time to enlighten us about the historical and current state of immigration policies in Japan, particularly from humanitarian perspectives. Again, that was Dr. Yoko Demilius and Dr. Sarah Park. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. 
And to our listeners, thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.